This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. Hello and welcome to TGIF DCT here on Clubhouse in the Decentralized Trials Club. If you're joining us here live and if you're listening through a replay, either a replay on Clubhouse or listening on the Decentralized Podcast, welcome. Remember, if you're joining us through a replay or a recording, you're always welcome to join us here live every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern Time. We cover a range of different topics related to decentralizing clinical trials and research, making participation more accessible for all. Of course, 12 to 1 Friday may not work for everyone. Maybe uh, your West Coast coffee time is occupied, your East Coast lunch or your European cocktail, but that's why we have the recordings always available. If there's a topic you'd love to see us cover in the weeks and months ahead, just drop a line to myself, Jane Miles, Amir Kalali. You can message us here through the Clubhouse app, on LinkedIn, on X. And if you're not into it, messaging on those platforms, that's okay. You can send a note to secretariat at dtra.org. Let us know a topic you'd love to see us cover. Maybe you'd like to be like Ed, Vic, and Approve and join us here on stage as a guest host for one of our upcoming conversations. Just let us know and we'll add you into the fabulous calendar that is lined up for the next few weeks. Okay, Amir, I know you've been traveling around a bit. You've missed the last uh, week or two, I think, but it's great to have your voice back here today. Thank you. I appreciate that. And Jane, I know you're just back on the ground from a couple of days in sunny Orlando. Are you uh, are you ready to go? Are there any amazing uh, key highlights from a few days at the Scope Summit that are fresh on your mind? Was it sunny? I didn't get out of the building. <laughs> so that's the highlight. It was really busy and it was great to see people. It was great to listen to great content in the sessions. Um, I think it was... Everybody was happy to be back out in the world with friends and colleagues. I also thought it was energizing to see how much activity was in the decentralized and hybrid track over at the Scope Summit. It is a reminder that even as the tourists have left the space, the people that are committed to getting work done are committed to learning and sharing together, committed to uh, continuing to improve how we're executing, sharing experience and evidence, and that's how we'll make continuing progress here. 
Well, in the spirit of continuing to share and learn and grow together, I'm really excited about this week's topic, not just because I love the term techquity. I think it's a, it just connects and it just makes sense when you see it, but seeing this applied to our field around access, equity, including in clinical research. And so I'm delighted to welcome our guests, and maybe I can invite uh, Vic, if you'd like to come off mute, introduce yourself for folks in the community that haven't had the pleasure. Certainly. Um, um, thank you. Hi, folks. This is Vic Catesball. I am a uh, clinician, physician by by training and uh, been kind of playing with computers for a long time. My particular interest here, particularly with the DTRA, is we've been involved with, I guess, research and the notion of longitudinal data, a lifetime person record as informing a number of use cases. And I believe as we focus more on chronic disease and the lived experience of consumers at home and how our interventions are or are not working, uh, the idea of longitudinal data, and, and in particular decentralized trials, uh, our particular perspective is that we, we need to be able to reach consumers where they live in the wild at home, and it's a really important topic. So, pleasure to be here. Thanks, Vic. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about the work and experiences you've been developing and some of the data and evidence along the way. So, it's really a pleasure to have you here. Um, Ed, it's wonderful to have you here as well. Please come on off mute, introduce yourself. Many thanks, uh, Craig and the DTRA team, um, and to Vic, who I think will be uh, moderating some of this, this discussion. So Ed Ramos, uh, I am the Chief Science Officer at Carevolution. Um, full disclosure, I also have a dual role as the co-founder of the Digital Trial Center, which sits uh, under Scripps Research. Uh, this is something that uh, Vic uh, and many at CE have been uh, strategic thought leaders in getting off the ground. So it's been great having those two uh, avenues for pushing research in a variety of different modalities. Uh, I'm trained as a population geneticist. Uh, I consider myself really having been in the health disparities field for almost the last uh, 15 to, to 20 years, if you consider some of the things that I've been trying to get off the ground since grad school. Uh, and so the initial workings of this really came under the flavor of the intersection of genomics and health disparities, especially when the human genome was uh, first mapped and a lot of the ethical, legal, and social implication uh, issues started uh, surfacing. And a lot of that was tied to health disparities. And for me personally and professionally, it's kind of evolved into uh, what does that lens look like in the digital and technology uh, era that we're currently in. And so it's great to be able to bring some of those lived and professional experiences to the discussion today uh, as um, my role in Carevolution is really trying to push the envelope on how we can uh, make better tools uh, with regards to designing and launching research studies, especially those focused on uh, being decentralized and obviously leveraging digital health technology. So it's, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks so much, Ed. Great to have you here as well. Approved, do we have you uh, with us on audio? Dramatic pause, bit of silence. Vic, I think we might have to forge ahead. Um, 
Vic, I know you've put a lot of thought into uh, into setting the stage for this topic around the digital divide and is our use of digital and in and technology and healthcare and clinical research is it at risk of exacerbating the the digital divide or how can we be thoughtful and generate evidence on strategies that can actually show we we can bridge and reduce inequities and gaps for folks whether in care or in access to research. Where would you like to uh, kick off our conversation today? Yeah, maybe a couple of just introductory remarks um, around around this particular topic, and and maybe it gets to uh, the primary objective is if I play a word association game, and in this kind of a context of healthcare professionals, uh, and use the word digital. I believe the most common next thing that comes to mind for folks in a word association game is divide. <clears throat> and I think the purpose of this conversation is to see if we can explore and double click on that and say, you know, is it possible that that may be a stereotypical view, uh, just like the fundamental issues around inequity and too broad a paintbrush, and that we need to develop maybe a more nuanced understanding that if we say digital, some of us, maybe more of us, start to say, hmm, bridge or divide, and begin to explore that. So that, that's sort of the primary purpose, is to spawn a conversation around that. And, and the thesis is, um, maybe a couple more comments around that, is, you know, as a medical professional, obviously, it's frustrating to continuously see now for a very long period of time that the same disease, and more recently, this, this virus, uh, can have profoundly different impact on people, depending on where they live, you know, what their income level is, the color of their skin, the religion, the creed, or the choices in their life partners, etc. And obviously, the pandemic tended to really bring that to the forefront of late, given sort of the data that came out. And that's been a slow burn. It's what we all call the inequities in healthcare. And of course, the, 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 the reason that's so offensive is that it's not because of the bio, biological predisposition of certain populations that, that actually caused this to happen, but it, it's often things around what can be you know, broadly described as access to care or disenfranchised populations and things of that nature. And, and our perspective in this conversation, I suppose, is very much focused on research. You know, we, we describe the UBR or underrepresented populations in biomedical research. And that's particularly frustrating because if we can't actually distinguish the biologic, genetic, and other markers um, that actually can have different uh, impacts on a potential therapy, because we don't even have recruitment in our trials then I think it, it just exacerbates the whole problem. And so the question really becomes, what is the role of technology in potentially addressing some of this? Is it exacerbating it, as you said in the introduction, or is it a possible uh, that they can be uh, an ameliorating force in actually reaching anyone anywhere to participate in research? Um, and, and I think that's it. That, that's what we wanted to do. We have done some work in this area for the last four or five years that's beginning to show potentially promise, and we wanted to open a dialogue around it. Well, I like the way you set the stage here, Vic, because I know there are some that may feel that um, 
representation that's needed is more around genetic diversity is our race and ethnicity and other factors really signals about where outcomes may be different that we should be uh, studying and ensuring representation across all of those dimensions. You know, I frame that because it's such a, a strange year for po continuing polarization, certainly here in the United States and elsewhere, around terms like diversity and equity and inclusion. But as you framed it, when we have different outcomes for different populations, this isn't just about social justice. This is also just about proper good outcomes for all patients who may be exposed to a given treatment. Uh, do you worry, Vic, about the the state of tequity in, say, the United States in 2024 and continuing commitments? I think we all do worry about that. Uh, in particular, I think, and maybe Ed can speak to this, you know, one of our worries is that too often the idea of technology or digital, more often uh, as it's called, is thought of as an exacerbation. So we often elect not to introduce digital interventions or technology-based interventions to certain populations, say Medicaid. Uh, and that stereotype that it will, the only thing that it can do is potentially exacerbate a problem, maybe resulting in us actually missing an opportunity. And I think the conversation and some of the data we want to start to explore is not to just focus on the delta between, say, the access of XYZ technology or digital literacy amongst, you know, between two populations, Black, Hispanic, Brown population, socioeconomically different subset versus, uh, and I'm going to pick on white Protestant male, highly educated uh, college degree holder. Uh, yes, there is a difference in percentages, but I think a different way to frame that conversation is to say, what percentage of the black, brown, lower, et cetera, population has access and digital literacy? And how do they wish to interact with a healthcare system or a researcher? And is that number 80% of folks with digital literacy? And maybe we can have a nuanced approach to reach them with digital tools that leaves 20% in that particular cohort that we need to apply our resources in creative ways to use non-digital intervention. And maybe in a different group, it's 90% of the people we can reach with digital tools and 10% that need other kinds of interventions. And we think that way of thinking about equity as a means to reach precision recruitment to the population, specifically within the population, may be a more productive way to think about the whole issue. Thanks for the framing. And Vic, it sounds like you and Ed and the team here have been uh, generating some evidence and uh, data to help frame this story. Uh, certainly, we're meant to be an evidence-driven ecosystem in the category in which we operate. Uh, what types of tools or methods or interventions are you starting to see bring bring um, evidence one way or the other? Are there some strategies that maybe we thought might work that evidence suggests otherwise? Are there some that really we should be doubling down on that the evidence is, is confirming some of our beliefs that we can bridge this divide? 
or maybe maybe I'll start with a couple of what I'll describe as myth-busting data that's out there that might be helpful. Uh, and then I, maybe you can build on <laughs> uh, your experiences in a couple of the trials we're trying to run that, that why we focus on anyone, anywhere participation. So, you know, a couple of myth-busting things. Um, you know, one gets to the root cause of what results in inequitable participation in research. Why do we have underrepresented populations uh, in research that don't reflect the diversity of this country? Um, and, and, you know, there's some really good work, National Academy of Medicine in 2022 really put together a, a, a very nice, it's a book that basically does a comprehensive lit search from the NAM uh, titled Improving Representation in Clinical Trials and Research. So, you know, we can post some of these links uh, in, in, in the channel, so to speak. Well, the, the top four reasons in priority order, uh, the main thing to take away is that willingness to participate is not different amongst those that are underrepresented in research versus those who are normals, so to speak. And so that really poses a very important challenge to us if it is not the willingness to participate, you know, if given the opportunity, what is it? Well, the top three, and this is again from the NAM uh, book, uh, which, which of course incorporates a lot of primary research. One is distrust of the healthcare system in general, our relationship uh, as a healthcare provider system in the United States is not, uh, let's just say we don't have the same trust fabric and heritage historically. And that's the number one reason that they identify. And we wonder that if most of our recruitment strategies are layered as essentially working through our recruiting efforts from within our patient populations, whether the uh, the, the underrepresentation of certain populations is simply a reflection of that historic trust issue. So maybe we need an innovative way to think about recruitment that layers in addition to uh, our patient flow. The second item that they describe is physical access to care and related economics. So not trust issues, not cultural uh, differences and, and, and trust between the consumer we're trying to reach and the healthcare provider, but rather physical access. Um, you know, whether it's a rural population or even an inner city, whether it's a transportation issue, the ability to take time off from work to actually show up to an in-person visit, that that's a second reason that there may be differences in uh, representation in, in clinical trials. And a third, interestingly, this is a particularly challenging one related to number one, is implicit bias amongst the researchers and providers that are often the front line. And so these are the top three reasons. Uh, and, and what is not a reason is a willingness to participate. So in this context, one can imagine that digital can actually be, again, an ameliorating channel that can address this. And of course, our responsibility in the digital experience design is to include in the design process the very populations we're trying to reach so that we do not end up embodying and incorporating our implicit biases in those experiences. So when we've done this kind of work, um, I think, you know, 
that there are good results. So the first myth is that maybe certain populations are just not interested in participating in research. And I think I wanted to just bring that up that that's actually not, uh, that's been shown to, to not be true. And I'm curious on others sort of pushback on that or whether this is uh, already well understood uh, by, by all of us. I don't think people will push back on that. I think, uh, you know, whether it's the finding that, you know, there are trust issues that are surmountable or that there's gaps in just people being invited because of other systemic biases that uh, that the invitations aren't being extended. Um, Jane, your thoughts on, um, you know, if if diverse communities actually want to participate? I will. Uh definitely endorse the statement that that's a myth like those people are interested in and i have some different points of evidence one of them is actually from a trial i got to support in american indian and alaskan native patients exclusively and it was really fascinating because those individuals were very interested in participating and had no way to do so unless it was through a digital interface If uh, if I could jump in here, I think part of this is an understanding of, uh, and I think part of this is time. Are researchers taking the time to understand why? So if an individual or a community or a subpopulation indicates that they are not willing to participate, why? And it could very well be that the why is, well, you're actually just not returning any information back to them, or you're not putting it in the context of what is uh, useful to them? Are you giving them health insights? And so while the high level uh, answer to the question of will you participate could be no, there's a lot of subcontext to that as to why is it a no? And then putting forth the energy and the understanding to actually then change the model, change the study design, have the conversations, have the discussions to really get to all right, well, what is it that is going to be of value to participants, to this community, to this population, and bring them in? And I think that's where we're starting to have the tide change a bit with uh, really stopping uh, the high-level discussions and getting boots on the ground in terms of, well, this is what we can actually do. And what we can actually do are things like putting together a virtual advisory team that is composed of... Uh, various different individuals that represent different populations, different sectors, different lived experiences. So they can opine and they can be a part of the design process, as Vic mentioned, uh, among many others. And we're starting to, and I hope we start dipping into some of the data here, we're starting to see this bear fruit. Uh, and it is moving away from theory uh, to really having more concrete evidence that uh, it doesn't need to be a divide and, in fact, is serving as a bridge. Would you be willing to double-click for a minute on the inherent bias issue? And I was curious to know what your thoughts are. Have we improved? Have we moved ahead? Because maybe a decade ago or so, Tufts did a study and their findings were approximately 
30 to 40 percent of patients were excluded from being invited to consider a trial simply based on their physical presentation to the site staff. So what I mean by that is, did they take a bus? Did they come in with a small child? How were they looking literally as they walked in the door? So I'm curious, is that what you mean when you talk about implicit bias or is it something different? And do you think we've made progress? Ed, you want to take that? <laughs> yeah, happy to. Um, and so implicit bias is can refer to a number of different uh, scenarios and perspectives. So uh, the things that you describe, for example, uh, obviously um, the uh, implicit part of the implicit bias is that you're unaware of what you're bringing to the table in terms of uh, making pre-decisions uh, uh, on, a, on a particular individual, whether it's because of the color of their skin or your assumed uh, socioeconomic status or whatever. And obviously that then has a downstream effect on how you potentially treat them, how you perceive them, and so on. Um, I think what we're trying to get at here is that there are a number of different manifestations of that. Uh, and so what are the ones that we can tackle head on? And so if the implicit biases are, oh, well, Latinos uh, don't want to have anything to do with uh, diabetes research. Um, and uh, that is because uh, my implicit bias as a provider is that every time uh, the population that I treat uh, is not adherent to uh, the medication treatment schedule that I give them, for example. Um, obviously, that's going to have significant impact on your study design. It's going to have significant impact on whether or not you pursue trying to bring this community into the research ecosystem. Um, and I can go on and on, and, and I want to make sure that we, we don't drift too far into a kind of the philosophical aspect of this. But yeah, implicit bias has a number of different faces, and all of them are reared. <laughs> Um, in the context of clinical research and clinical trials. Well, it, it, and if I can build and, and bring it to part of the reason for this session, this title Tech Equity, is one of the implicit biases that we are bringing in is to not leverage digital tools with certain underrepresented populations, very specifically. And, and we can post some data. BCG just did an analysis of health plans and providers, when they think about potential interventions, they will tend to provide those interventions to commercial population, somebody who might have an employer that is offering them coverage, but not to the Medicaid or dual eligible population. So it's an example, it's a, it's a really pointed example that we have an assumption that minority populations in, in quotes, minority, whatever that means, um, are digitally not savvy, literate, or accessible. And therefore, we don't introduce those digital interventions first to them, let alone uh, designing it with other things. So it exacerbates. So this is now, uh, I, I would postulate this is like an explicit bias, not an implicit bias. 
uh, as an example. And, and, and this gets to the second point on myth busting is this idea that there is a digital divide. And, and this is controversial, but what I would <laughs> like to do is to maybe update the data <clears throat> uh, on do minority populations have access, so to speak, to digital, which at least for the last 10 years has often focused on data on broadband access. Very specifically, the presence of laptops and desktop computers in the home with a broadband internet-based access. And that has, that has been valid, that there has been a significant delta uh, across populations on broadband access when defined, if digital is defined that way. In the last five years or so, what we're finding, of course, this is like new, there's nothing new about this, that it's all about mobile, that regardless of how we roll out an initiative uh, in healthcare or otherwise, close to 80 to 85% of the users are mobile. And when we redo that data, so we've now looked at data from um, commercial sources like Statista, public nonprofits like the Pew Research and government uh, surveys, and then most recent was done in 2020, 2021, the US Census Bureau. When we look at smartphone access and use of data plans, there's almost no difference. There's at the worst difference is a five point difference that is between 85 to 91% access across populations. And in this context, um, I think we want to reset our expectation about the infrastructure or digital access, smartphone access, broadband access, that definition. I think we may be using anachronistic data that is no longer applicable uh, or as applicable as it used to be when we contemplate and plan an intervention. And so that implicit bias kind of becomes explicit because we're using potentially outdated information to plan our interventions. And, and that might be one of the more, um, you know, we see this across public policy. We see this uh, in, in well-intentioned groups trying to focus on that the irony and paradox is groups that are focusing on DEI, interestingly, oftentimes begin with an assumption that says that there is that the the underserved population will not want to interact with me uh, in a digital fashion, and so I think that's one of the really interesting things to really tackle head on and explore whether that's in fact valid or not. And of course, our hypothesis and some promising data that's shown, and I'll I'll point to one of them. So during the pandemic, with the Say Yes COVID test initiative, which was trying to figure out around March of 2021, as at-home antigen tests were just coming out and maybe becoming available over the counter. We were participating in, in these initiatives, uh, in fact, trying to generate the evidence for, for, with the FDA uh, for, for the emergency use authorization. And then ecological real-world experiment uh, was, was desired. Instead of doing this where people are literally standing in line uh, cars and stadiums that are waiting to get a test, can we actually have this be performed at home uh, by folks such that their actual performance at home and their ability to read, uh, how can we test that at, at large scale? 
And so one of the first ones that the NIH under Dr. Collins' leadership was done was in North Carolina and Tennessee in two uh, particular counties. And the question was, how do we get 40,000 households in a matter of two to four weeks? And then when you do time motion studies about how many churches, how many YMCAs we can get to and maintain six foot distance, it just wasn't adding up. So some of our ideas working through that in problem solving way was, hey, why don't we do what we're trying to do now with Uber Eats and food? Folks are able to have that stuff delivered at home. This is how we're going to our Kroger's and other kinds of things. It's a safe way of doing it. And of course, during that conversation, there was great concern that the digital ordering may exacerbate some of the concerns we had about inequity. And so knowing all of that a priority and being concerned about that, we were rather careful about understanding that. And, and we did roll it out. It was not the only way you could order a test. And of course, you, you, we still had YMCAs and health departments and mobile units going across neighborhoods. But what we were able to do working with, and I, I wish Apoorv was on, 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 online and able to speak to this because they ran all of the data on this, is when we looked at zip code analysis, looking at social vulnerability index down to the zip code level, and the rates of digital ordering versus analog procurement of the test, what we discovered was something pleasantly surprising and in hindsight, very sensible, that the rates per capita of number of digital orders per thousand census population were not only not any worse, but in some cases were higher from zip codes that were associated with high social vulnerability index. So you can imagine that if I am not living in an affluent neighborhood, or I am far away and happen to be in a health desert, or I happen to be a worker who is hourly uh, and does not have the luxury to work from home in those moments, that I am challenged in showing up in person to pick up my at-home test, and I find it convenient to be able to order it online and have it delivered to my doorstep. And so we have some really detailed zip code level data across 5 million households now across the United States that demonstrates that the digital interaction is in fact something that can reach populations, not all of them. We still we have to layer other things, but it certainly did not bear out the concern that, oh, we're, we're in a low-income neighborhood with the traditional concerns. Let's not focus on digital ordering here. Let's not invest in publicizing QR codes. Let's not do you know, Facebook ads in this neighborhood to say, this is how you could uh, access uh, the lab test or to get vaccinations for that matter. So I'll pause there as an example of how that, that, that digital divide concern, if we just take it at face value with a broad brush, might actually be very counterproductive in how we plan our interventions. Thanks so much, Vic. We're at about the halfway point here, and this is a great reminder for folks that maybe dropped in halfway into our session here live on Clubhouse that you've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club and it's TGIF DCT this week. 
We're speaking with Vic and Ed. We're talking about Tequity and using digital as a bridge to engage different communities, unlock access. Uh, remember, if you're listening through our replay uh, on um, your favorite podcast channel, the Decentralized Podcast is out there, and you can always follow and subscribe. And that way, you'll be kept appraised if there is some updated content that we drop during the week. And as always, if there's topics you'd love to see us cover, drop us a line and let us know. Also keep in mind that if you're here with us live, the folks that are in the room with us could be interesting allies and partners for you around your next challenge. So certainly check out the profiles for Vic and Ed here that are our guests this week, but also poke around the rest of the room and see who's here. Uh, they could be interesting problem solvers for your next challenge. This is a great opportunity that if you have a question, a perspective you'd like to bring into the conversation, maybe you've been dropping it in the chat, but you'd love to jump up on stage, take advantage of that hand-raising icon in the lower right on the mobile app. If you're on your laptop, I don't even know where these buttons are anymore, but raise your hand. We'll pull you up here on stage and we'd love to hear your perspective. Amir. Hey, just want to thank Vic and Ed for what we've discussed so far. I think it's been fascinating and really important material. Um, I guess it sounds like you have come across folks that have been surprised by your findings or pushed back on it, or because everything you said makes perfect sense and is very important work. Has there been any challenges trying to persuade people about that, sort of the, your conclusions? Um. I guess the way I would put it is it's it it's the fact that the baseline design of how we think about reaching underrepresented populations tends to not include digital intervention. And I think that's what we're trying to address is that it often takes external pressure. And even there, yes, I, I would have to say, yes, when we are in that conversation, I feel like at times I'm from Mars talking to a group to say, oh, if we're trying to reach that population, you know, maybe we should try to recruit digitally. And 80% of them want to be reached digitally. That's 10% lower than the other population, <laughs> uh, but it's still 80% full. And we ought to offer that option to them. And, and we did another trial you know, the asthma digital study run by UC Irvine uh, in, and, and sponsored by a national health plan, which was, I think the data just came out and was covered by Stat News and a variety of other places. And it was interesting. So this is an asthma digital tool for self-efficacy, not a service uh, operation, but mostly to focus on a digital tool that is targeted towards asthmatics that have bronchodilator as something that they need to have around. And, you know, there was a lot of discussion in the design of this particular randomized control trial where half the population received some digital nudges and uh, wearables based on resting heart rate and other kinds of things that maybe, you know, you might, uh, because your sleep has been disturbed, just complete an asthma control test, really brief questionnaire for yourself the next day. And what we found very interestingly is we rolled this out with, with the National Health Plan Anthem, Elements Health in a randomized control trial 
And two years out, what we found was a very statistically significant reduction in ED visits in the Medicaid population, but not in the commercial population. Now, interestingly, the design up front, the question was, will the Medicaid population leverage a digital tool at all or not? Should it be rolled out there? Will the uptake be too low? In this particular case, we proceeded ahead. And what, what's really fascinating is the data now shows two years out, and, and we can again post the links to this, that while there was no benefit for the privately insured folks in the intervention arm, participants in Medicaid actually one emergency visit is avoided for every four people on Medicaid that were in the intervention arm. And again, the null hypothesis, what we hypothesize, the reason for this is in the commercial population, folks may have established relationships with their PCP uh, and other such care providers, but maybe in the Medicaid population, it's potentially more itinerant and they don't have established relationships and therefore a digital tool actually results in improved outcomes as measured by ED visits. So it, it's an example of another place where the design itself tends not to focus on the underserved minority population as a digital tool for concerns about digital access and exacerbation because of the digital divide. And, and, and you know, health tech writer uh, Mario Aguilar actually quoted after reviewing it that the study highlights why bias against targeting people on Medicaid with digital interventions can miss the very populations where it may have the most impact. It's a very long, drawn-out way of showing that it takes a lot of persuading to even target the digital intervention to the underserved population. Oftentimes, they're excluded from the intervention. And so that's one, they're not even getting the same intervention that others are oftentimes because they're, they're, they're not the first folks we reach out to. And that, of course, exacerbates the fact that we often will not then design for their specific needs to the extent they may have very specific cultural and other needs uh, that, that should be for them. Thank you. I appreciate the answer. Thanks. So I'm going to double click there for a second and remind people if you have a question, please raise your hand. We'll bring you up. But I'm interested, and maybe this is contrarian, Vic, but what I notice amongst the drug development population, the folks I know who are designing and executing trials, mostly interventional with therapies, social and digital recruitment is now their norm, almost to the exclusion of other methods. So I'm curious, are you, do you think we have differences in the research populations themselves as they're designing and executing their trials? I'm happy to, to jump in there, Vic. Um, so I, I think that's a great observation, Jane. In our conversation, and a great question, Amir, to kick this off, um, so in, in, and it allowed me to think back to some of my initial conversations with potential partners and collaborators, some of which are pharma and drug development entities. And it's, for the most part, it, it's certainly not we don't want to target certain communities or populations, is that there's a tremendous amount of hesitancy. And I think where we're starting to see the shift is that 
we can start presenting our successes to them and showing them viability in this model of being able to bring digital health technologies into a study design that they now can appreciate that this is real. Um, and so I think laying the groundwork helps tremendously in making the argument for this type of study design. And so very specifically, for example, on the script side, they had um, supported by the CareVolution platform, we had run the DETECT study uh, in response to the COVID pandemic. Uh, we built out a baseline cohort that was very observational, but then allowed for a more uh, concerted interventional effort. So this was focused on getting individuals, now that we had an algorithm uh, running in the background that was analyzing um, uh, baseline deviations from baseline in digital biomarkers such as resting heart rate, uh, sleep duration, and physical activity, such that participants now in the sub-study that were developed uh, would get pinged if they uh, were deviating from their baseline and alerted to take uh, a COVID test, which was also uh, part of a digital platform, uh, and also asked to connect their electronic health records so that we could monitor health outcomes. The beauty of the digital platform, uh, and all of this was effectively self-guided in the participant journey that was built out within the accompanying study app, is that with a target of, uh, granted this was on the smaller side, uh, of just under 500 individuals for the pilot study, we set a target for ensuring that we had 50% UBR, meaning underrepresented in biomedical research. So participants indicated that they were part of a certain race or ethnicity, uh, or had uh, challenges in access to care, or were of a specific, a specific educational attainment or gender identity, uh, as well as sex assigned to birth and sexual orientation. All of that kind of makes up this UBR metric uh, of 50% of the cohort was our target, and uh, also a target of 35% of participants that indicated they were of a race and ethnicity uh, also typically underrepresented in biomedical research. We were able to hit both those targets for a number of reasons, uh, one of which is being able to get creative with the digital tool. So we created a, a, a waiting room of interested participants and had them fill out the demographic sur survey and ensure that we prioritize those populations of interest. And that's really how we were able to drive the enrollment and cohort structure of interest for that particular sub-study. And so I think when you have these success stories, or at least these models and mechanisms, uh, it allows for a uh, reduction in that hesitation of, of potential partners, uh, such as drug companies or biotech companies, to really take that on as a primary study design. So evidence generation will help us shift the practice, which is great. Thank you so much for sharing the study results. That's fantastic. And, and maybe to expand, Jint, on, on your question, absolutely, I think social and other mechanisms are a core part of all study recruitment efforts. I do think that a, a few layers deeper in that this idea oftentimes, particularly when it comes to phase two, phase three trials, for all very good reasons, they all end up being somewhat hybrid. There may be a CRO, there may be site-based processes and steps involved in that. 
And I think contemplating the flow, the, the participant journey all the way from generating interest all the way through to eligibility, self-attestation, to confirmation by certain kinds of things down at the site level. In that cycle, which is all, always the case, I think one could shift and invest more in recruiting at lower cost and appealing to the underserved, underrepresented populations up front, upstream from that, and then the site-based dynamics can result at much lower cost, I think, the representation they often seek. And so these ideas of virtual digital waiting rooms, I mean, we're getting into the weeds a little bit, but those kinds of strategies can really layer in very nicely to ensure that pharma, biotech, life sciences organizations, and the fact that many of the kinds of things are to be done at the site that we somehow um, address some of the site-based inherent dynamics because the, the sites tend not to be necessarily in the rural area. The site will not tend to be in an area that uh, maybe uh, from a population density happens to be underrepresented minorities. And then, then the researcher is not there. So how do we then right-size that? So I think this is a little bit of the, the, the strategic design that digital means of creating a higher proportion of interested parties in the waiting room that are from underrepresented minorities uh, could be very interesting. Jed, never worry about getting into the weeds. That's actually exactly where our audience wants to go. They love the data and then they love to know how the sausage is made. So thank you very much for sharing that example. I think it makes it much more tangible for people. Yeah, I think one of the challenges of clubhouses is audio only. So, you know, some of the flow charts and stuff, we got a lot of detail. We love details. Um, some, some visual aids can be very helpful in some of these data. We'll come up with some creative ways to get, get these references out because th that's where all the magic is. Well, Vic, if, um, if you don't mind, if, if you're okay to say drop on LinkedIn a couple of visuals following the session today, um, we can always tell our listeners to check out your your feed over on LinkedIn for some visuals that back up some of uh, what we're talking about today. Can that work for you? A absolutely. Uh, th that's a great idea. And I'm showing my own digital Luddite. Is, it's big decks as opposed to nice, well-formed, bite-sized uh, visual. We're working on that. Yeah, uh, pretty soon we'll see you on TikTok, right, Vic? <laughs> right alongside the president, uh, probably just as effective. <laughs> so, um, Vic, when we're when we're thinking about some of these uh, considerations around uh, around equity and bridging the divide, um, is so much of what we see with pharma today in these uh, implementations is themed around hybrid options and choice. Um, do options and choice, is that kind of a, a key ingredient for for supporting equity? Um, or is it a bit of a cop-out in, in not fully understanding what the stakeholder wants, so trying to answer it by throwing everything at them? Hmm. That's, a, that, that's a great question. Um, I, I, maybe... 
first reaction is I, I think options and choice um, at, at surface, of course, that's a, that's a good thing. Um, but I think the devil's in the details and, you know, no different than I think thinking about simple translation to other languages versus culturally uh, appropriate messaging. Um, there's a big difference between offering a digital choice, which is simply a manifestation of the analog way we would have done business, versus that choice being micro-targeted and actually sensitive to the population we're trying to reach. So I, I, I think choice is good. This is about how we go about that work. If we, I, I think a team that thinks about well, we did the campaign, the social media campaign, paid or organic, in that neighborhood as well. Anybody can get to it. Versus really looking hard at trusted community-based partners that can amplify the message, uh, places of faith that can get that out, you know, to address the trust issues. I think that's where things get more interesting and differentiated and impactful. Yeah, if I could quickly add, I would say that um, I think it it would be helpful to take a minute to think about what are what does the scope look like in the options that you're presenting. So, for example, if I'm a PI designing a study, and I say, you know what, it's just easier to print out these informed consent forms, have they physically sign them, and they're on their way. And that may be true that that's an easier workflow than, say, asking them to download an app and uh, go through the informed consent form on their smartphone and digitally sign. However, then, if you take the next step to think about scope and reach, well, if you're talking about having them come into a physical site to sign a piece of paper versus now being able to really allow anyone anywhere to participate in the site that has access to a smartphone, then you're potentially changing the framing of what you're trying to accomplish. And so I think there's, it's a great question, um, but I think that that has quite a bit of, of nuance to it. Thank you both. Jane, Amir, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Any final burning questions on your minds? Or I will turn Vic and Ed back to you if there's any final roll up, final call to action that you'd like to share for this audience in terms of takeaways, actions, next steps for, for them to think about in their work. Um, Jane, Amir, I don't see you jumping off mute. So Ed, Vic, would you like to wrap things up for us with any good uh, actions for our audience? Well, maybe the, the, the call to action threefold. One, I think arming ourselves with updated statistics and data related to digital literacy and how populations are interacting with it. And I think we are living in a post-broadband, post-laptop, at-home access world. That, that, that's sort of a way and, and to, to, to really think about that deeply in, in our planning. The second, maybe a bit more nuanced focus on not just looking at the headline differences in digital literacy and even smartphone access of the what is a shrinking approximately 5% difference between the most digitally savvy populations uh, as, as a bulk cohort versus those who are not. And to say if 
in most cases, 80% of my target audience is digitally savvy and digitally literate. Uh, what do I need to do in their digital medium for that underserved population versus what I do for the majority digital reach, right? So different experiences for them. So that's the nuance focus as opposed to sort of still arguing about, well, adoption is 5% less in the underserved population. So this is a digital divide. Uh, and maybe the third, the, I'll go back to the top of the conversation. If we are able to achieve and break the word association, <laughs> a first instinct, I say digital, and then we all pause and go, okay, how do I make that a bridge and not just conclude and, and, and shorthand say divide? I think we will have done the right things because it'll activate the creativity of the, the, the broader group uh, that, that's out there trying to address this issue. Great. And Craig, I want to just say again, thank Vic and Ed because this is a really important topic. But I also want to remind us that we're not the center of the world. We could do a lot with learning from countries like Singapore and what they've done with digital. So I think the other thing for me is always to learn from what's been going on outside our borders. Yeah, and Amir, that was actually uh, a perfect piggyback for me and one of the points I wanted to stress, and that is to really arm yourselves with the data to combat that hesitation uh, that I was referring to and to not fall into the trap of any, as new technologies or new approaches um, surface, uh, to really think about how can we put the typically underserved, underrepresented, marginalized computer, uh, communities at the front of the line rather than waiting for things to come around full circle and then consider them as part of the conversation. Great way to wrap up our time today. Ed and Vic, thank you so much for joining us today. Vic will be a, a reminder for folks to make sure they're uh, checking out your LinkedIn thread for uh, in the next uh, week for maybe some, some of the visuals that can help uh, folks to navigate around this space. I'd like to thank everybody for joining in the conversation today of active chat group, maybe not as chatty jumping on stage, but chatty in the chat. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing the group here next week. In the meantime, enjoy your weekends. Thanks, everybody.